The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. So we'll be in Luke 14. We're going to look at, uh, starting at verse 1, and just go through the passage there. And as we prepare our hearts, um, it's always just good to stop, pause, reflect, and be reminded of what we're about to embark on. We're not looking at a human book. We're not here this morning to listen to any man's thoughts, any human thoughts. Hopefully you didn't come to church to hear what Pastor Cliff has to say. Literally, I hope you came to church thinking, I want to hear from God this morning. And the only way that we can make that happen is look to his word together as he speaks. Literally, to hear from the God of the universe. That's our privilege. That's what we do. That's what we believe. It's life-changing truth. And we want to get it right. And so I can't just be a one-man show. You've got to study along with me. You have to be Bereans, committed believers who have the Spirit of God living in you, reading, listening with discernment, with discretion, asking God's help so that he might illuminate this truth for us and then help apply it to our life to help adjust our thinking. Most of what we're going to see today in Luke 14 are the words of Jesus Christ from 2,000 years ago. They have been preserved, his words. Jesus Christ, the God-man, the one who, with the Father, created the universe. Jesus Christ, the one who is the judge of every human soul. When you die, when I die, every single one of us, whether you believe in God or not, when you die, you immediately face the risen, resurrected, all-glorious Jesus Christ. And then he will make a judgment. He will render a judgment. And it's very simple. That judgment is based upon what you thought about Jesus Christ in this life. How you responded to his truth. And that's what the heart of the passage is today. As Jesus is talking to an audience of people. And he's laying it down very clearly, very simply. Here's the greatest priority in the world. Here's the greatest truth in the universe that you need to understand. Personalize Apply it to your life. Because eternal souls are at stake. Your eternal destiny is on the line. These supernatural, sobering truths from Jesus Christ himself. What a privilege it is to go to God's word and then just hear the teaching of Jesus Christ. We will be reminded once again with what simplicity and clarity Jesus spoke with. That the passage today in Luke 14, you could read it to a third grader, a third grader, and they would get it. They would get it. The question is, do they understand the spiritual implications of it? Before we get to Luke 14 and the message of the day, which I've titled here, Jesus Confronts Legalism. That's one possible title. So complex what we're going to see here. That's not all it's about, confronting legalism. It's about much more. It's impossible, actually, to put a title on it. Jesus confronts legalism. This is part two. If you weren't here with us last time, I laid the foundation for this passage today. So we're just going to jump right into the text since we already laid the foundation. Before I get to Luke 14, I want to read from Luke 6. If you had your Bible and you wanted to follow along, if you don't, that's fine. Just listen carefully. Luke 6, uh, fast, go backwards in time of about two and a half years to the early 
Galilean ministry, when Jesus began public ministry when he was 30 years old in his own hometown, and quickly as he was publicly preaching and teaching, proclaiming the kingdom of God, proclaiming that he was the Messiah and teaching in the Jewish synagogues, he was getting immediate resistance to his message. And it was resistance from those who shouldn't have been resisting. It was the religious leaders, the experts on the Old Testament, those who should have known that Jesus was the Messiah. That's who's resisting. They have all the power. They control the people. They control the synagogues where he taught. They control the temple where he goes to worship. So we're going backwards in time here. Luke 6, I just because we're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and it takes a while, I don't want to lose the continuity in the big picture. Because if you've been following along in the Gospel of Luke for 14 chapters now, there have been common, constant themes throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ. And these are good reminders. I, I would imagine that if I asked every Christian that's here today or listening, is one of your greatest goals in life to be like Jesus? I think every professing Christian I've ever met says, yeah, I want to be like Jesus. That's my goal. I want to be like Jesus. And then we usually end the conversation there. And we don't actually ask, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be like Jesus? Well, for some people, say, oh, I want to be a nice person. Well, that's the wrong answer. The desire and goal of every Christian should be I want to be like Jesus. Well, we've been informed by 13 chapters of Luke, and now 14. And that will define for us what was Jesus really like according to the Bible. I want to be like Jesus. Well, then, at a minimum, that means I want to be a truth teller, because that's what Jesus has been doing for 14 chapter, 13 chapters. Everywhere he goes, he speaks nothing but truth. He speaks it courageously, boldly. It doesn't matter who's in the audience. Everything is spiritually oriented. So if you want to be like Jesus, then you will be committed the rest of your life to being a truth teller about spiritual things, regardless of who's in the audience, regardless of the consequences. That's what it means to be like Jesus. I will be a truth teller. And if you're going to be like Jesus, that means you're going to be dealing with conflict your whole life. If you're going to be like Jesus, you're going to be displeasing people everywhere you go every time you open your mouth. Because that's what's been going on in the Gospel of Luke. Luke, every single chapter since Luke chapter 4, Jesus has been involved in high-level, intense conflict with people. Why? Because he's a troublemaker? No. He's actually a peacemaker, and he's getting in trouble because he's doing one thing, and that is speaking the truth. Spiritual truth, eternal truth. Sinners don't like that. Just a good reminder for all of us. Do you really want to be like Jesus? Then you're not going to be able to pacify everybody in your life. And the likelihood is you, the longer you live as a Christian and the godlier you become as a Christian and the, the more committed you are to maturing and not compromising, the likelihood is that over your life you will lose more and more friends. Except for the minority of believers that you surround yourself with who actually agree with you. That's what it means to be like Jesus. So, Luke 6. Early on in Jesus' ministry, in the Galilean ministry. Now it happened, uh, verse 6, on another Sabbath. So this is Saturday. Sabbath. This is key. Because this is parallel to our passage today in Luke 14. On the Sabbath, 
It was on the Sabbath, Saturday, when you weren't supposed to work. He entered the synagogue, and he was teaching. So he's the preacher of the day. He's the rabbi. And there was a man in the synagogue whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were in there. They're running the synagogue. They even invite the guest preacher of the day, the religious leaders. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching Jesus closely. That is a key phrase because that's the exact same phrase in Luke 14 we're about to turn to. It's a very specific Greek word. It's only used six times in the New Testament. And literally in this context what it means, the scribes and the Pharisees were watching Jesus with suspicion. They are watching him like a hawk. They are watching him to trap him. That's what it means. And that happened on this occasion. Jesus goes into the synagogue to be the teacher of the day, to bring the word of God to refresh the people. And here are the suspicious scribes and Pharisees who already hate Jesus. They're watching him closely, watching every move. It's the Sabbath. And what are they watching? For him to break some Sabbath rules. Some man-made Sabbath rules. Not Old Testament God-given mosaic Sabbath rules, man-made tradition, their own rules, their artificial fabricated legalistic rules. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching Jesus very closely, very to see if he healed on the Sabbath. Wow, what a crime. To see if that he might help someone on the Sabbath. To see that he might give comfort to someone on the Sabbath. To see that he might provide rest on the day of rest. Because what a crime that would be. These are the most religious people in Israel. Who have this attitude. Watching him carefully so they might accuse him. Uh, But he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward here in the synagogue. And so he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, the critics in the audience, because he knew what they thought, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? What a great question. To save a life or to destroy it? How How are you supposed to answer that? After looking around at them all, Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he did so. And his hand was restored instantaneously right there in front of all those people. A miracle on the spot. Supernatural. Something that few of us, if any of us, have ever seen anything like it. Right there, in front of the crowds. Right there in the synagogue. Miraculous. Family was probably with him. Seen dad or grandpa. However long instantaneously, supernaturally, miraculously healed with the word of Jesus Christ. And of course you would imagine that everybody there, including the religious leaders, celebrated and were just filled with great joy. But instead it says, but they, that's the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, when they saw this, they were filled with rage. They were filled with rage. Okay, fast forward. Now we go forward in the ministry of Jesus. That's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now we fast forward to two plus years where he's now leaving Galilee, and he's going to Jerusalem to the cross, and it's the beginning of his Perean ministry, and that's in Luke 13. We saw this not long ago. Very similar situation, uh, and there are parallels from this story to the one we're looking at today in Luke 14. That's why I'm reading it. Luke 13, verse 10. Jesus was teaching in the synagogues on the Sabbath. Again, here it is, on the Sabbath day. Jesus is in the synagogue. He's teaching He's 
in the synagogue teaching on the Sabbath, and there was a woman there who for 18 years had been had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double over and couldn't straight, straighten up like this. For 18, had a spirit, a demon. 18 years. Jesus has compassion on this woman. Uh, when he saw her, he said, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. He laid his hands on her, and immediately, immediately she was erect. What that means is the demon left her. And she was perfectly healed. And she began glorifying God there in the synagogue in front of everybody. Praise Yahweh. And you can imagine the crowd and everybody and all the religious leaders. They were delighted as can be in celebrating with this woman. Glorifying God, no doubt. That would be a normal human response. But verse 14 says, when they saw that, the synagogue official. This is probably a Pharisee or an associate of a Pharisee or a scribe. The synagogue official, the guy in charge, the Jewish leader in charge, the guy who hates Jesus who's in charge of the religion, the synagogue official, was indignant, angry that this woman got healed. Well, why is he so angry? Because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. I just want to remind us of the context, the background, and who these religious leaders were and what they were like. Their hardness of heart, their arrogance, their pride. And they think they are in with God, with Yahweh. Like no other. They're masters of the Bible. They can quote chapter and verse. And look at their attitude towards people. Needy people. It's pathetic. Verse 15, Jesus right there publicly does what needed to be done. He reprimands this man. Oh, by the way, the guy, he is indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And he stopped and he made an announcement in the synagogue. I know we already did Saturday morning announcements for the service. But I've got a new announcement for all of you. You want to come and get healed, don't do it on Saturday. We've got six days to get healed. Don't ever do this again. Wow. I mean, this is just mind-boggling. Verse 15, then Jesus, he's got his own announcement. Uh, The Lord answered that guy and said, you hypocrites. You religious hypocrite. Okay, with that, let's go to Luke 14. Let's look at verses 1 through 6. Now we fast forward maybe a couple of other months. Now we are literally at the end of Jesus' ministry. A three and a half year ministry, we're probably in that last six months. He's left Galilee where he grew up. He crossed over the Jordan River. He spent some time in the area of Perea, and now he's heading over. We don't know if he's crossed the Jordan yet, but now he's going down to the, where the temple is. He's going to intersect perfectly during the Passover week because he is commissioned by Almighty God according to eternity past and the prophecies of scripture to die on the Passover that's where he's headed and along the way he's hitting all these synagogues why because their synagogues spread all over Israel and he's a rabbi he's a teacher of the law he's a master of the Old Testament he's the God man but all the Pharisees know each other all throughout Israel and There are hundreds, if not thousands, of Pharisees. And in the network and probably in their secret offices, there's a picture of Jesus, and it says, wanted, dead or alive. All Points Bulletin has already gone out on Jesus three years ago. The scribes and Pharisees, they know who he is. They despise him. And it's already been said many times in the Gospels that their plan was just to trap him, arrest him, and kill him. 
So that's our background. So here we go. He could be in Perea. Verse, let's just look at verses 1 through 6 because this is the foundation for the rest of the verses up to verse 24. And it happened that he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath. So probably had synagogue that morning like we have our church service on Saturday. They had their time in the synagogue of teaching the word of God, singing songs, having fellowship on Saturday. And now they're having a fellowship meal. And they didn't do that at the church or the synagogue. They did that in homes. And this fellowship meal is at a private residence of a leader of the Pharisees. A leader, not just a Pharisee, a leader of the Pharisees. One of the most respected. The the word used to describe this guy is only used a few times in the New Testament. It's used with respect to Nicodemus in John 3. He was the leader of... Or the ruler of the Jews. That was a very small elite group. Very significant. Not only did all the people bow in homage when they saw the rulers of Israel. The Pharisees bowed to these guys. They had authority. They had a power. They had wealth. They had control. Uh, That's who this guy is. And he's having his own private fellowship meal. And you don't go to his house unless you're invited to get through the probably armed guards and the gate and the wall around his home. He had a massive house probably. There are massive houses there and there were in that day. Palaces and many palaces. This guy was significant. And he's got his own private elitist by invitation only lunch. Think of the most famous Hollywood star and inviting their select few with the red carpet rolled out. You're not allowed to touch or go near or breathe on or even look upon the red carpet unless you have been invited among the elite few. That's who this guy is. That's how prominent he is, religiously speaking, here in Israel. And so it happened when Jesus went in the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees. There it is. This, is not, this guy is not a friend of Jesus. We, we know from Scripture already. Not one of the Pharisees, as far as we know, ever got baptized by John the Baptist. Not one. John the Baptist was preaching and calling for repentance for months on end. And all of Israel came to get baptized. Why? To identify with Yahweh of the Old Testament which the Pharisees believed in, but it also meant to identify of what John said, that Jesus is the Lamb of God, and they would have none of that. So years has gone by, and they haven't gotten baptized by John the Baptist. So they made a public statement. No, we do not support you. We do not endorse you, Jesus, of your claim that you are the Messiah of the Old Testament. We reject that, but come over to my house afterwards for lunch anyway. And you can imagine, as far as we know, Jesus wasn't, wasn't with his apostles, with his posse, with his entourage, with his disciples, with his relatives. As far as we know, he's by himself at this private home of the ruler of the Pharisees. And we also know there were invited guests who were scribes or lawyers and other Pharisees. This is one on 23. This is one on 37. We don't know how many are there. He's in enemy territory. He doesn't have home court advantage. But he doesn't blink an eyelash because he didn't fear anybody. He fears no man. He fears no situation. So 
This is the context. Jesus went into the house, one of the leaders of the Pharisees, on the Sabbath, to eat bread. And they, that's the Pharisees, they were watching him closely. So here it is. He enters in, whoever this Pharisee is uh, that let him in. And they are watching him like a hawk from the time he steps foot on the property as he goes through the entryway and as he makes his way to sit down where the meal is going to be provided. And how do they... They didn't have tables and chairs like we might have in our kitchen with you got your table and six chairs around. That isn't how they had dinner. It's, it's going to be on the ground. And this kind of formal setting is probably a U-shaped where they're sitting, laying down, where they're reclining on pillows or low-to-the-ground couches. Like, just imagine you're sitting down in a U-shape, and at the bottom of the U is the host of the dinner. And everybody else are invited guests. And where you sat, you had assigned seating, basically. The closer you sat to the host, the more prestigious you were, the more honored you were at the banquet or the dinner. Very similar to when you go to a wedding, a formal occasion, a form, not just going to a restaurant with friends. This is like a formal occasion. When you're going to a wedding that has a formal reception with a limited number of people, and you finally get there, and you look at the list. Okay, first of all, am I even invited to the reception? I thought I was. Did I sign up? Then you go in there, and there's your table. Okay, I got table number three. Where's that? Well, I see the bride and the groom table and all the groom. Up there, way up there. Where's number? Oh, number three's way over here in the corner. Okay. Or maybe table number three is over by the bride and the groom. And maybe you feel, oh, I feel honored. Or maybe you're just randomly put somewhere. But that's very similar. So this was specific. This was deliberate. Where you sat on the right and on the left were the most honored positions in this kind of dinner. That's why the two apostles... James and John, at one point, got their mommy to tell Jesus, uh, Mommy, tell Jesus, these are grown men, Mommy, can you tell Jesus to let us sit on the right hand and the left hand after we go to heaven and in the reign of the millennial kingdom on earth when we're all reigning in glory and resurrection bodies with uh, iron rods in our hands? Can we, huh? Can we? On the right and the left? They literally made that request. Mom complied and she asked Jesus. That's what, that's what this is, the right hand and the left hand. Jesus was actually sitting probably on the right hand of Jesus at the Last Supper. G, I mean Judas. Judas was sitting on the right hand probably of Jesus at the Last Supper. Judas, Judas, who was demon-possessed at the time. That was not a mistake. That was deliberate. That was the merciful, gracious, patient Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, giving Judas the betrayer, one last chance to repent. As he sits in the most honored seat at the the Last Supper with Jesus. So that's the setting here. So whether it was assigned seating or maybe they had the freedom, okay, first come, first serve. And you can imagine they were probably throwing elbows to get to the most prestigious seat. We don't know where Jesus was sitting. Maybe he was either on the right or the left. Maybe he was the honored guest. If he was the honored guest, uh, it wasn't because the Pharisees liked him. If if he was the honored guest, it was a setup. It was a complete set. It was a trap. 
Trying to fool Jesus. Trying to deceive Jesus. That's, the con- that's what's going on. These very fine nuances. They are watching him closely. He takes his seat, apparently, and then they're ready to begin the meal. And then look at verse 2. Uh, my New American Standard says this. And there in front of him. Okay, that's a horrible translation. It shouldn't say that. So, because I'm just studying from the Greek text, and there's words there that need to be given credit. They need to be mentioned. Every word of God matters. So, the ESV, the New King James, the Legacy Bible, they all get it right here at verse 2. And if you have a pen and you have your NIV Bible or your NASB or your CSB, you might want to scratch out the word there. And there in front of him, because that is not what it says. You can actually scratch out the word there and put in the Greek word if you wanted to. It do. I-D-O-U. And it do. And behold. And that word is used consistently throughout the Gospels. And behold. It's an emphatic term. Every time you see the word behold, you should be taken aback a little, or even startled. It's an attention getter. When Luke wrote this, he was being delivered. Okay, how can I get the reader's attention about what a big deal was going on? Oh, it do. And behold. So for us in English, it would be, and get this. Or you'll never believe it, but you need to believe it because this is what happened. And and usually what follows, if if you watch it do in all four Gospels, every time it is used consistently, it always speaks of something extraordinary is about to follow. And it can be either really good, really amazing, or really bad. That's why little words matter. This helps us understand what's going on here. It's not all nonchalant. Oh, and there before him was a man. That is not what it is. And behold, and get this. He came to this private, elitist, important dinner as an invited guest. And they all lay down, getting ready to eat the scribes and the Pharisees and this ruler of all the Pharisees and Jesus. That's the who's who of Israel in his day. And behold, and get this in front of the lunch table. There's some sick guy laying on the floor right in front of Jesus. Doesn't that seem kind of weird? That's why it's behold. This is not normal. That's what that means. So, what does it mean? Well, in verse 1 when it says, And it happened when Jesus went into the house of one of the leaders, the Pharisees, to eat. To eat. No, that's, that's not what's going on. Jesus went into the house to get trapped. This is a trap. This is a trap, and that guy laying on the floor sick, what is he? He's a piece of cheese. He's cheese for the trap. Jesus is the rat or the mouse. This guy laying on the floor, uh, he's a prop. That's what he is. He's just being used. He's a prop. He's a foil that they might catch Jesus. He's a pawn to, to be used by these Pharisees. They don't care about this guy. They have zero compassion for people. We already know that. That's what, behold, behold, this is significant. 
And behold, this is crazy. And behold, get this. And behold, you're not going to believe this. And behold, right in front of Jesus, and literally the phraseology, right in front of Jesus. So who knows how many people were at this banquet or meal or dinner. Maybe it was 12, maybe it was 14, maybe it was 52. They're all laying on the floor. They could have put this sick guy anywhere. Or they put him right in front of Jesus. Right in front of Jesus who didn't hang out with these guys. Jesus didn't commiserate with the Pharisees. Jesus was in Perea for all we know. He may not even hardly known these guys. Maybe he's never met them before. He's a complete and total stranger. And they put this guy... The sick laying on the floor in front of Jesus at mealtime. So this is pretty concrete. Hopefully you got it graphically in your brain envisioning. I see what's going on. Oh, this is a no-brainer. So and behold, and right in front of Jesus, there was a man suffering from dropsy. My New American Standard says dropsy. Drop, does that mean anything to you? It meant nothing to me. Dropsy? I, I had to look that one up. Dropsy. So I got a pen and I scratched out the word dropsy in my New American Standard Bible. Pastor Cliff, you can't do that. You're tampering with the Word of God. No, I'm, I'm, t- I'm tampering. I'm erasing a lousy old English word we don't use anymore. And I wrote in the Greek word. Get this. And there was a man suffering from hydro. Oh, hydro, hydraulic, water. That's exactly what it means. And there was a man laying there suffering from hydropikos. It's one word, hydropikos. He had the appearance of being filled with water. That's literally what it means. He had the appearance of being filled with water. He had the appearance of being filled with water. That's 10 words for one Greek word. I mean, 10 English words for one Greek word. So it is hard to translate. But... uh, Dropsy doesn't really help us. What is it? It's hydropikos. He is, uh, his body, his organs are, his vessels in his body are just uh, drowning with water. And you can visibly see it. This guy is drowning on the inside internally from too much water in his body. It could be because of kidney failure. It could be congestive heart failure. But it had to do probably with the internal organs. This guy is bloated. He's probably unclean ceremonially speaking, which is ironic because then he shouldn't be in the Pharisee's house at a meal. But they were hypocrites. This word is used only one time in the New Testament as far as I know. I just think that's interesting. Okay, we've seen him. We've seen Jesus heal blind guys on the Sabbath. We've seen him heal the deaf and the lame and the demon-possessed, and um, boy, we still haven't nailed this guy, so hey, oh, I got one. Let's try a disease he's never confronted before, as far as we know. Who knows what they were thinking? But it is true that this disease, hydropikos, is not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. But we know what it means. Edema is an English word for the modern-day diagnosis of this, but it's, it is. There's stuff, you are drowning, your internal organs are drowning from too much water. People die from that. That's what this is. This man was drowning in his own internal waters from organ failure. Uh, that's the disease. And Jesus answered, well, they haven't said anything, but he answers anyway, because God the Father has given him insight and prophetic discernment at this point. Did Jesus know everything all the time during his ministry? And you said? No, he did not. 
that was not a trick question. Well, it's kind of a trick question. But anyway, he, always, he committed himself to only know what the Father revealed to him at any given moment. There were times where he didn't know something. He didn't know the time of his second coming before his resurrection. He didn't know the woman that he touched uh, who had the issue of blood in that moment. He grew up for 30 years just as an, another normal boy, even though he was the God-man. There were times where God the Father said, okay, I'm going to let you be able to read their minds. I'm going to let you know the future. So it is case by case, but it's always in tune with uh, the will of the Father at any given moment. So he sees this man drowning in his own water in verse 3. And then Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers, the scribes and the Pharisees, his critics, those who were suspiciously watching his every move. And they are just, their eyes are laser focused now. Okay, wow, Jesus is focused on that. We know what Jesus thinks about sick people and needy people. He always helps them. We got him now. Locked and loaded. So Jesus knows he has a captive audience. And so he says to them, he spoke to the lawyers, the scribes, and the Pharisees, whom he called hypocrites a chapter before. So Jesus answered and spoke to the hypocrites there at lunch, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Uh, That is just a loaded question that only Jesus could come up with spontaneously in a moment. (laughs) It's it's a little different than the one we saw in Luke 7. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? See, it comes across as a yes or no question, but it's not a yes or no question. Uh, If you said just yes, you'd probably get it wrong on the quiz. If you said no, you'd probably get it wrong. Well, that's not fair. It's a loaded question. Is it lawful? Because you've got to ask, is it lawful according to what law? That's the issue. That, to say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? When you're talking to Pharisees and scribes, guys who make up their own laws that aren't in the Bible, that's the issue. They've been making up laws for 150 years. Since the Maccabees. And they're, they're keeping a record of it, and it's just growing and growing. This huge, massive book with tens of thousands of rules and laws that only they know. And they're not in the Bible. And a lot of those rules, they conflict with the Bible, the Mosaic Law. Jesus did not ask, is it lawful according to the Mosaic Law? That would have been a different question. That's more specific. That's, is it in the Bible? Does the Bible talk about this? Does Scripture address this? Did Moses talk about this? When Moses talked about the Sabbath as specifically as he did, is the following okay or ruled out? He didn't ask that question. He asked, is it lawful? And, so, and lawful to them could be laws they made up. So they've got a problem. First of all, Jesus knows the Mosaic Law better than they do. Even though they probably had it, get this, memorized. The scribes, that was their job. They're called the lawyers of the scribes. They were legal experts of the Mosaic Law. They were experts they had it memorized. Uh, But they've met their own here. I mean, they've met somebody greater than them because Jesus just didn't have it memorized. He wrote the Law of Moses. He was the lawgiver. He wrote it. He determined it with God the Father, and he dispensed it and gave it to Moses as part of the triune God of the universe. They have no idea who they're dealing with. Um, 
So is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So according to their laws, their man-made laws, it depends. It depends. But as you saw in chapter 13 with the synagogue ruler, typically, unless you are about to die and breathe your last, you were not allowed to get any kind of medical attention on the Sabbath. You had to wait till the next day, Sunday. According to their laws, their man-made, made-up laws. Is it lawful? What about the Mosaic law? What did the Mosaic law say about getting healed on the Sabbath? Well, the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, the Bible did not rule out the possibility of getting healed on the Sabbath. You can get circumcised on the Sabbath. The priests could offer sacrifices on the Sabbath. You could get healed on the Sabbath if God so desired to heal you. But he's trying to expose their man-made laws that conflict with God's law and smother God's law. And that's what religion does. That's what false religion does. That's what man-made religion does. It smothers God's truth so that people can't see God's truth and understand God's truth and learn from God's truth and be saved by God's truth. Man-made religion sends people to hell. And that's what these guys did. The scribes and the Pharisees, they made their man-made laws. They were... They were sons of hell, Jesus said in Matthew 23, and they make sons the twice, sons twice the sons of hell. They're disciples. They damn people's souls to hell for eternity. That's how serious this is. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So knowing the nature of this disease what is it? Hydropikos. This man is drowning to death before their very eyes. Number one. Number two, he's probably ceremonially unclean. According to the Mosaic law, if someone is sick. It doesn't mean he's extra sinful. It just means ceremonially, in terms of doing rituals, functions, having fellowship, celebrating a feast, celebrating a Sabbath, doing sacrifices, there had to be a period of abstinence and physical cleansing, all this. And that was symbolic of being separated unto God. So he's drowning to death and he's ceremonially unclean. So if he's ceremonially unclean, what should Jesus not? What's the last thing Jesus should do when he's about to eat something on the Sabbath? The last thing Jesus should do is touch this guy. That's the last. That's like in Luke chapter 5. There's a, a leper going around in public, who's supposed to be in the leper colony outside the city, according to the Mosaic law. And the Mosaic law says, whatever you do, you see a leper, don't touch him. And then in Luke 5, Jesus sees the leper. What does he do? It says he reached out and touched. Jesus did not have to touch the leper to heal him. He could heal people from a distance. Jesus touched the leper and healed him. That is the compassion of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the power of Jesus. Same thing here. Jesus probably shouldn't touch this ceremonially sick, unclean man drowning in his own internal waters. Uh, So is it uh, lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Verse 4, as you can imagine, they kept silent. (laughs) Why? Because they couldn't answer. They were dead uh, either way. If they said yes or they said no... Uh, Jesus had them. They would have been exposed as fools 
as ignorant, as hypocrites, as wrong, lawbreaker, he could have said. And they're supposed to be the law upholders. This is interesting. This is like um, basic human behavior, isn't it? When you're talking to somebody and you're talking about maybe something intense or you're speaking the truth or you make a, uh, a statement or an affirmation or a declaration and it's accordance to truth and it could be potentially divisive or controversial, but, you know, it, but it is God's truth and there's the person listening and they're listening to you and you ask a question and you're explaining it and they just give you a blank stare. They give no response. You can't read their face. They don't say yes or no. They don't affirm anything. They don't nod their head either way. You don't know what they're thinking. You know, they're listening. They understand, but there's no response. But there's a lot going inside their mind. It's like, oh, I don't want to be here. Oh, I don't believe that. Oh, I can't. No way. Oh, that's it. I'm not listening to this person ever again. That can't possibly be true. That's what's going on in the mind. And yet, what are they doing? Complete silence. That's the irony. Silence says a lot sometimes, doesn't it? Silence says a lot. Sometimes that's the case here. They understood they were the most highly educated, prestigious intellectuals in Israel at the time regarding spiritual truth and the Mosaic law. They knew what the answer should have been. And Jesus asked a very straightforward, short, simple yes and no question. This is basic. Is it lawful to heal or not? Uh, And they kept silent. They kept silent. Okay, fine. Don't say anything. So Jesus does the unimaginable. And probably what they were looking for, it says Jesus took hold of him. So Jesus gets up off uh, the seat there and goes up in Greek. And the the terminology here for this Greek verb, uh, again, one used only, I think, six times in the entire New Testament, to aggressively grab, to snatch. Sometimes it was like Paul when he got arrested. And they cuffed him up and grabbed him roughly. Or when Jesus grabbed the babies and picked, swooped them up and put them on his knee to say a prayer and give them love. Just complete, uninhibited enveloping into your arms. That's what it means. That's what he did. Probably to their aghast and expectation, all at the same time, Jesus took hold of him, aggressively grabbed this man and held him and squeezed him and healed him on the spot. Isn't that awesome? Healed him how? He kept him from drowning. That's what it means. Because that was his problem. Instantly all that water inside that was drowning his organs, gone. Instantaneously healed. Again, remember when I said that this guy was probably a prop? Meaning he, he probably on, under normal circumstances wouldn't be invited to this kind of elitist dinner of the head Pharisee in town. He was probably a nobody in normal circumstances. Part of the the laity, just the people, the hoi polloi, the lower class, not one of the elitist special ones. Probably not a buddy who commiserates with these scribes and Pharisees and the ruler there. So had Jesus healed him and then just, oh, yeah, let's stay for dinner. Welcome to dinner. Here he is sitting there in the middle in an awkward spot at this dinner. He's not at one of the... Seats, he's sitting right in front of Jesus. That's not a place to be sitting down for dinner. All the focus on him, all the attention on him. Should he have stayed for the dinner? Well, Jesus, I think Jesus does the gracious thing. He heals the man instantaneously. Uh, And then verse 4, it just says, and he sent him away. 
I mean, just even that, that little phrase. You're reading through your Bible, and we just pass through those kind of phrases. We don't even pay attention to them. We forget it, like that. Jesus sent him away. How gracious, how kind, how considerate was that of Jesus? Always thinking of the other person. What compassion, knowing that this guy could be subjected to shame and harassment and just downright feeling uncomfortable amidst this group of people. This group of arrogant, hypocritical, religious snobs. Who knows how long he had this disease. He sent him away, which means he sent him away out of that place to go home. To be with family. That's where you want to be. Go home to to family and celebrate. Look what God did to me on the Sabbath. You talk about rest. To go home with the family. And his friends. That's awesome. That's what Jesus does. He cares about the details. He cares about the personal things that matter. He cares about the things that nobody else recognizes or cares about. This is very personal, intimate care. This is how Jesus cares for you as a child of God. Practical needs that have huge potential emotional impact, psychological impact on your life. Send him away. And so that guy goes away, and then Jesus says this in verse 5. He said to them, who's the them? Well, you got this, the guy, the host. Jesus is going to talk to the host and all of his friends, all of his invited guests, the scribes and the Pharisees. To the host, Jesus said to them, this is in this guy's house. When was the last time you went to dinner and publicly insulted the host who invited you over for dinner in front of everybody? Maybe you do that on a regular basis. I, I just... That's weird. You shouldn't do that. This is not the first time Jesus is about to do this. Uh, so he says to them at, while they're having dinner, which one of you, remember this guy was drowning? Which one of you will have a son, and that's the proper translation, based on the Greek text, will have a son or an ox fall into a well, and the word for well here is very specific. It's the opening part of the well, or that part of the well where you actually, where there's water, and an ox could, because these wells, the way they were built, they were all over Israel, from top to bottom, from Dan to Beersheba, and sometimes they were not strategically located, or there was no sign, or there was no lid, and they were just left open. It's kind of like a huge, massive pothole, and people did children, they'd they'd fall down there, or people who weren't paying attention, they'd fall into the well, they would drown, they would drown and die, drown. And that happened with animals as well. And an oxen, he picks ox as an illustration, because ox was probably your most expensive animal that you could possibly do, because it was the most durable, it was the largest, it had the most strength, it could do the most work, it could plow the field, it would last a long time, it was good for food. There's a lot of, this was highly priced commodity. And we know from another verse in the Gospels, the Pharisees loved money. The Pharisees loved money. What's an ox? Money. Material possessions. That's what's going on here. What else did Pharisees love? Well, they loved little Pharisees. Who's that? Their own children. So this illustration is just beautiful. It's perfect. 
Which one of you will have an, a son or an ox fall into a well to potentially drown to death and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? You, you'll rescue your own children from drowning on a Sabbath. You'll rescue your own animal from drowning on the Sabbath. So is it not okay for me to heal this man from drowning on the Sabbath day? Who is before us? Verse 6, as you can imagine, they could not make a reply to this. Verse 4, they kept silent. Verse 6, they could not make a reply to that. Why? Because they're dealing with God in the flesh. That's why. The infinite almighty God of the universe. They had no argument. It's unassailable. The truth of Jesus Christ. So, from here on, verses 7 through 24, Jesus gives three parables. So, if you're looking at your outline, verses 1 through 6 was the specific situation, meaning this, is, this was a real incident, and this was the foundation for the rest of the chapter. This real-life scenario and incident that just happened, that was one of those behold times, like, wow. That was short. That was quick. That was spontaneous. That was breathtaking. That was tense. We got some riled-up emotions right now. These guys, they are seething on the inside. The Pharisees. And the ruler of the Pharisees. And the scribes. Because they came here for one purpose, and that was to set Jesus up and to trap him. And once again, they are unsuccessful. They don't have the heart. Uh, they don't have the right heart. They just saw an unprecedented miracle, and they still don't have the right heart. That's how hardened these guys are. Right in front of their eyes. Jesus Christ. They hate him so much that he, when he does an undeniable, unprecedented miracle, they have never seen, they don't say, praise Yahweh. It's you have a demon. You are from Satan. That's their response. They've done it before. So Jesus knows. He knows their heart is wrong. They're as hard as can be. They're the leaders of Israel. They're supposed to represent the people of Israel. They're supposed to be mediators uh, between the people and Almighty God. They are uh, the caretakers of the Word of God, of the Scriptures, where the very infinite mind of God is revealed to the people so that they can have salvation and forgiveness and a relationship with the Creator. They're the guardians of that, and they are as hard as flint, as arrogant and prideful as can be. Coupled with a hate towards Jesus like no other. And Luke just takes us from, it doesn't get any better, by the way. The Pharisees keep popping up in chapter, in Luke. Luke 14, Luke 15, Luke 16, all the way to the end of Luke. And they keep popping up and their, their hatred just continues to grow and grow. Grow and grow to the point that they, will, they are willing to do anything to get rid of Jesus Christ. Even falsely accuse him. Subject him to a false trial. Manipulate the crowd to scream for his blood in public. And have him crucified, which is the worst kind of execution you could possibly do with a criminal. That's where this is going. 
And so Jesus, appropriately, he gives three parables using this scenario to speak about spiritual truth. So look at verse 7, this first parable. So we've got verses 1 through 6 was the specific situation, and that was legalism smothers grace. That's the point. Legalism smothers grace. Religious legalism smothers grace. Uh, Point number two is the general explanation after the specific situation. The general explanation, uh, God exalts the humble, verses 7 through 11. That's what Jesus is going to, that's his main point, 7 through 11. God raises up the humble. So let's look at the parable, verse 7. And Jesus began speaking a parable to the invited guests. So there it is. It's to the ruler, it's to the scribes, to the Pharisees. Again, we don't know how many are there, but it is a private residence. And he's speaking a parable specifically chosen for them. The point of the parable is in verse 11. Every parable only had one point. Here's a little hermeneutics. When you're dealing with a parable of Jesus, it's a parable. It is not an allegory. There's a huge difference. An allegory has secretive, mystical, spiritualized meanings embedded at every incident and word throughout the entire story. And there's usually one person who has the secret decoder ring to tell you what it means. Allegory. They're hard to figure out. A parable is the exact opposite. A parable is just analogy. It's an analogy. That's it. It's a story used as an analogy or a metaphor. It's an extended metaphor. It always has one point. That's it. Not 17. Just one point to every parable that Jesus tells. And it's always a spiritual truth. And it takes us from the earthly reality that everybody gets and understands and he wants to elevate us from there to this one spiritual truth that he wants to get across with the parable. Just one. And his one spiritual truth in this parable is verse 11. Everyone who exalts himself, everyone who is proud, will be humbled, will be humbled by God, will be judged by God. Your day is coming. You will fall from your pride. You will crash. You will burn. Look out. Take heed. But... In contrast, those who humble themselves will be exalted. If you are lowly regarding yourself, you think lowly or appropriately of yourself, meaning you know you are unworthy compared to God, you are a sinner, you're even lowly compared to other people, you deserve nothing, you're not expectant, you don't presume. Thank you, God. Every day is a day of grace. You're familiar with your own sin. You hate your own sin. You examine yourself regularly like 2 Corinthians 13 says. You pray daily confessing your sin to God like 1 John chapter 1 says in Matthew 6. You're aware of your sin. You, like David, you ask God to search your heart to look for unknown, unseen sins in your own life. You have so much humility, you're willing to ask the closest person in your life who knows you best to, to tell you what your sins are. That's humility. Humble means lowly of mind. In other words, you don't have an exalted view of yourself. The Greek word for pride, it's a compound word, and the first part of that word is hyper. Hyper, up here. Man, you're over the top in what you think of yourself. What is the greatest enemy of God, humanly speaking? It is pride. It is pride. And we are all susceptible to it. Religious people are particularly susceptible to it. And that was true of these guys. So here's his parable. Man, you guys, you guys need a, a lesson on humility. you got a pride problem. And that pride is going to separate you from Yahweh God forever, for all eternity. That's, that pride is going to damn your soul. 
So Jesus tells this parable to the invited guests, and, and he noticed how they had been picking out, the verb here in the Greek is picking out for themselves, for, them, for themselves, middle voice. It's like, you know how musical chairs, you ever play that? Music's going, and then the music stops, and you fight and kick and all that just to get that one seat, and you don't care about everybody else? That's what they were doing. The door opens, and they're a mad dash to the, the right or the left of the host so that they can be esteemed by everyone. Jesus noticed that as they came. As they're looking at him, he's looking at them. They're carefully watching. He's carefully watching them. Carefully watch him. And he noticed. He noticed how they had been picking up the places there of honor at the dinner table. Saying, and then he said to them, when you, Now, guys, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, not this, he kind of tones it down a little bit. And says, imagine a wedding feast, which is a very special, one of the most special kinds of dinners you can be invited to in the days back then, 2,000 years ago, and even for us. Now, when you are invited um, by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. Don't go fighting for the best seat in the house. That could turn on you. That could be embarrassing. For someone more distinguished than you might show up at the wedding and was invited by the host in verse 9, and the one who invited you... Both will come and say to you, who tried to get the highest place of honor at the wedding where you didn't belong, and then somebody else more prestigious comes, like you went and just immediately took the seat of the bride's father at the reception dinner without looking at the label. How embarrassing would that be? Everybody's sitting down, and then they escort, and now the father of the bride, and they go to his chair, and somebody's sitting in the chair, and it's you. Get out, pal. Oh, there's one way over there by the exit. How humiliating would that be? Well, that's what Jesus is saying. And then you're asked to leave, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, instead, go and recline at the last place. Don't just be thinking of yourself. So that when the one, the host, who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Get closer. Come on forward. Come with me. That can be kind of nice. We all kind of like that. Like the 4,000 guys that go to the shepherd's conference. They're all fighting for a seat, kicking, punching. All these pastors kicking and punching and biting for a seat. It it happens. And then then one of the ushers brings you up and you get two rows away from John MacArthur. Boy. (laughs) And you, and you stroll down the middle of the sanctuary and everybody's watching. And it's televised. The whole world is watching. That make you feel kind of good. Yeah. <laughs> then you are honored is the idea. Friend, move up higher. You may sit by Pastor MacArthur. Then you will have honor in the sight of all men who are at the table with you. Point of the parable. For everyone who exalts himself, lifts himself up, just thinks about him, Self will be humbled by God inevitably. And if it doesn't happen in this life, I guarantee the moment you breathe your last in this life, it'll happen in the next life. And boy, what a humbling that will be. Yet the one who humbles himself, and that's just, this is very specific humility. This is religious and spiritual humility before God, your creator, the one who made you. So I ask every person in this room, or can hear me, what is your attitude towards God like right now? The God who made you, the God who created you, the God who is your judge? The God who is the only way to heaven and eternity and forgiveness of sin in this life? Do you have an arrogant attitude? Have you hardened your heart towards God? I'm not going to assume everybody here is a believer. 
or a Christian. We don't know the hearts and the minds of people. Only God does. And you do. You know where you are with the creator of the universe. You've been stiffening your heart, hardening your heart, being religious all the while, saying, I believe in the Bible all the while. That's what's going on here. Well, you need to think about it. You need to be humbled and humbled first and foremost before God. And it's a deliberate action. James 4 says, you need to humble yourself. You need to humble yourself. That's a command. That's an imperative. You exercise your own volition to do it. It's not like some Christians think, oh, I want to be humble. I want to be humble. I want to be humble. I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say that, but that's not in the Bible. Or I want God to humble me. Or I, I pray that God humbles me. That's not a, it's, it. It is always humble yourself. James 4, humble yourself. That is your responsibility. Self-examination, admitting your sin, acknowledging your unworthiness. God, be merciful to me with your how head bowed, an undeserving sinner. You do that, Scripture says that person goes home justified, saved, regenerated, forgiven, adopted in the family of God, a child of God, an heir of Christ, eternal life right now. That's the good news. And it's all based on what Jesus did, not on what we do. Well, let's pick up with the next two parables because they are profound the next time we gather together. Let's go to the Father in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning and again, to the, the privilege we have to gather with God's people on the Lord's Day and all the blessings that come with that. We thank you for our time in the Word. We trust that you would help us lean on you and the Spirit to be our teacher and even other believers who have great insight from you on the truth of the word, of how we can understand it better, or maybe how we can apply it better. And we thank you for these truths from Jesus Christ himself, that we need to humble ourselves before you, God, as creator, as judge, as savior, so that we can have a right relationship with you. And we do plead for your help. Our sin gets in the way. We need your help to that end. And we give you all the praise and glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.